Welcome to Florida. That is the voice of best-selling author and award-winning environmental reporter, Craig Pittman. My name is Chad Scott, and this is episode three of Welcome to Florida. Later on in this episode, we will talk about python hunting in South Florida with Donna Khalil. But first, Craig, tell me about mosquito sex. (laughs) Well, when a mommy mosquito and a daddy mosquito love each other very much. (laughs) Uh, The reason you're asking, I wrote a column for the Florida Phoenix about an effort to combat invasive mosquitoes in the Keys with genetically modified invasive mosquitoes, mm-hmm. or as some people down there call them Frankenskeeters. The idea being that these male mosquitoes have been genetically altered so that they'll mate with the females in the wild and then produce offspring where the females will die because the females are the ones that, that bite you. Mm-hmm. And there are people in the Keys who are not happy about this. The EPA has given the green light to it. State's given a green light to it. Local Mosquito Control Board still hasn't given their formal consent, but they're thinking about it. What I wrote about was they had a public meeting where a whole mm-hmm. bunch of people were there and were like, why do we have to be the guinea pigs here? So so my column suggested maybe they should instead, instead of in the, they should release them in the backyard of the company CEO who happens to live in West Palm Beach. You can uh, read that article <laughs> and much of Craig's work by visiting the Florida Phoenix online. And I completely sympathize with them because so many of these projects seem like uh, 1950 sci-fi horror Saturday afternoon matinee <laughs> movies gone wrong. And the idea yeah. that you're going to, we're going to genetically modify mosquitoes and they're going to mate with these other mosquitoes, which are invasive to begin with, and we'll just do it there. And, oh, everything will be fine. Everything will be fine. Don't worry about it. I, I sympathize with the, the local residents who, like you said, don't want to be used as guinea pigs and, and have their land used as a, a, an open-air test tube, essentially. They had a uh, referendum on this back in 2016, and the place where they were going to release them voted pretty much overwhelmingly against letting them in there. Mm-hmm. But the rest of Monroe County went for it. And so there's the company's saying, well, we'll probably release them in a precinct where people voted for it. So now there are people saying, we should have another referendum. <laughs> so yeah. Well, we'll and, and again, the idea that what, they're going to put ankle bracelets on the mosquitoes so they don't uh, go outside <laughs> their prescribed neighborhoods. This is one of these better living through science things, with which just seems rife with unintended consequences. The uh, subject of Jurassic Park has come up a couple of times. Mm-hmm. And it does, I have to admit, kind of sound like, you know, the old lady who swallowed a fly and then she had to keep swallowing more stuff <laughs> after yeah. that. So. Well, and, and it, it's interesting because the, the mosquitoes, and these are the mosquitoes that spread like dengue fever yeah. and uh, the, the real nasty diseases and, and viruses like that, which are invasive. And later we're going to talk about invasive Burmese pythons, which have racked the Everglades ecosystem. What a lot of people may not realize that Florida, one of the things that makes it so wonderful is this climate we have that is really tropical. And almost anything can live here, whether it's supposed to live here or not. And it creates all kinds of, from mosquitoes to pythons to feral pigs. Florida is such a hospitable climate for anything to live here. Oh, yeah. Well, we have more invasive species than any other state. It's one of our claims to fame. You know, we've got iguanas that pop up in people's uh, Another great one, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, and and so monkeys. Fall out of the trees when it gets cold.
cold. Yes, we got the monkeys at Silver Silver Springs and, and a couple of other places, too. We've got giant African land snails that a religious cult smuggled into the country because they thought drinking the mucus would make you healthy. It nice. has the opposite effect. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, another another bad one that is uh, up here now. And, and in most of these start south and gradually reach their way north, but the cane toad is oh, yeah. a yeah. big one up here. I actually yeah. saw one of those. The other night, and there are tutorials online for how you're supposed to humanely kill those. But yes, Florida, I've always, before I moved to Florida, I always thought Florida was like living in an open-air zoo. And it is, again, because (laughs) the the climate is so hospitable. You just have no idea from one day to the next. See a monkey, see a Burmese python, see this, see that. It, it, It is one of the wonderful things about this state, but also one of the real problems the state has because they do yeah. billions of dollars in in economic damage. Oh, absolutely, and then they're pretty pretty bad for a lot of them are pretty bad for the native wildlife. Absolutely, um, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, the pythons, for instance, they're sort of the poster child for this. They started showing up in the Everglades in the late seventies, apparently released by irresponsible pet owners, mm-hmm. and then you know they've just multiplied them. There was a biologist there named Skip Snow who tried to warn everybody, and bosses said, "Oh, they're not breeding, so it's okay if a few of them flip through." Well, then, he, he around 2005, he found evidence of, of eggs, and he said, yeah. look, they are breeding. And by then, everybody said, oh, well, it's too late. Yeah. <laughs> we that, can't yeah. stop them now. Yeah. So kind of the only defense we have, I mean, other than alligators trying to fight them, which is pretty amazing, too, mm-hmm. are these hunters that the state has hired to go out and spend hours and hours and hours every night patrolling the Everglades looking for snakes to catch. A fascinating program that we will discuss with one of those python catchers. Donna's great. She's one of several women who go out and hunt the snakes out in the Everglades. And uh, uh, unlike the others, she actually has eaten some of them. (laughs) Well, there'll be a lot to speak with Donna about, and we will do that shortly. Again, if you want to read Craig's story uh, about the genetically modified mosquitoes, you can do that in the Florida Phoenix. You can follow him online on Twitter at Craig times. You can follow me on Twitter at Chad Scott. Two D's in Chad, two T's in Scott. Another Florida Phoenix article, Craig, that you wrote, uh, I've taken a great deal of interest in, and this is about Rodman Dam or the dam previously known as Rodman Dam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's Kirkpatrick Dam now, named after the state senator who spent so much time and energy defending it. And, mm-hmm. and the people who've been trying to tear the thing down Basically, since 1971, it was part of the. It was the first part to be built of what was going to be the Cross Florida Barge Canal, which was going to cut straight across Florida and let barges come across mm-hmm. instead of going around the Keys. Imagine, of course, I mean, it that, would have that's, also... what, that's one of those ideas that. It, it, oh boy! I mean, you you think about it now, and it's like, oh, and someone thought that was the aquifer. It would have cut into the aquifer and ruined our drinking supply. But fortunately, cooler heads prevailed. The federal mm-hmm. judge stopped construction, and then Richard Nixon ended their federal funding. One of those uh, cooler heads was Nixon, which showed how uh, ridiculous the people (laughs) on the other side of this uh, option were. (laughs) So, you know, although the canal was stopped, the dam had been built, and it has stayed there ever since. Lawton Childs, a Democrat, tried to tear it out. Jeb Bush, a Republican, tried to tear it out. They were unable to do it because some North Florida legislators loved the bass fishing mm-hmm. in the lake, and it's still there. And there's a group called Save Rodman Reservoir who insist on calling it Lake Oklawaha now, not Rodman Reservoir. They still want to keep it, and then there's a coalition of environmental groups now who are trying to free the Oklawaha River and tear down the dam. Yeah. So it's, a, it's an interesting subject and you know one that I've written about repeatedly for 20 years, and now I'm heating up all over again. So and we'll it's, it, it's interesting the... 
pace of time, which uh, environmental time is on a geologic scale, and these things happen so slowly. When you posted uh, your article about the Rodman Dam, and is it Oklawaha? Oklawaha. 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 Yeah. Aqua. One of those mellifluous uh, Native American name. I searched that on Twitter. And a tweet from you from 2013 showed up. And that yep. goes to show how long-term these projects to reverse all of this environmental damage are. And obviously, as you were discussing, this goes back to the Nixon administration. So yeah. you know, the progress in environmental legislation is not uh, measured in, well, this Congress or that Congress or this year or last year. This is something that people have been fighting for 50 years? It's been a while. Yeah. <laughs> it's been a while. Yeah, Longer yeah. than most people have been in Florida, let's put it that and, way. <laughs> and very frustrating. And what, so the, something I've been interested in recently is, is then there is a movement across the country, slow as it may be, for dam removal. Yeah. Dams were built just runaway dam building across the United States mm-hmm. in the – that – post-depression like period yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah for jobs for clean energy for cheaper energy to just to have people something to do well yeah. come to find out for farming yeah, yeah. That, that these aren't necessarily all good for a lot of reasons one it prevents fish from spawning and getting up river where they yeah. meant to be it's terrible for flood control because these dams hold back water until they don't and then it mm-hmm. all comes at you and we, we recognize that on uh, the Mississippi River with Hurricane Katrina and the annual 500-year flooding that the Mississippi now experiences. So what are the environmental benefits that the folks who want to take down the former Rodman Dam promote? They contend that taking down the dam will free this wild and scenic river to be the way it was prior to the part of its construction. It'll clear the way for the migration of manatees, which of course are a threatened species mm-hmm. and they need to travel back and forth. Also, striped bass migrate up and down the river, and they've been blocked by the dam. And it will also uncover 20 natural springs that have been inundated by the reservoir. The reservoir is, I want to say, like nine feet deep or something like that. And Mm -hmm. so the pressure on top keeps these springs from producing the water that they would produce. And several people told me they have, you know, every three or four years, they draw down the reservoir to clear out the aquatic weed, Mm -hmm. and which is, of course, something wouldn't have to do if it was a river. And they told me about going to swim in these these springs, the lost springs of the Aquawaha, and what a special thing that is for them. So there are arguments on the other side about, you know, the need to keep the reservoir for water supply reasons and so forth. But really what it all boils down to is people who say, we like the reservoir the way it is, and people who say, we would prefer to go back to having a free-flowing river here for environmental reasons and also for reasons of ecotourism for, you know, canoeing and kayaking Mm -hmm. and and that kind of thing. And the parallel I made in the column is to there was a dam on the the Dead Lakes, on the Chipola River, and they tore that out in the 80s because of problems that it was causing, and the fishing actually got better there. So... You know, just something to consider. You can read but, more about yeah. uh, Rodman Dam, the reservoir, that uh, topic at the Florida Phoenix. Craig's work there also features with the mosquito story. Now, for another publication you'll find Craig in, it's yeah. Flamingo Magazine, flamingomag.com. This month's edition has Craig talking about python hunters. So catch us up to speed, and then we'll call Donna and talk more with her about it. Well, uh, last fall, I went riding with a couple of the women who hunt pythons. They actually run a dog grooming service in St. Petersburg three days a week, and then they go down in the Everglades and spend three days hunting pythons down there. And so 
that adventure of going mm-hmm. with them to watch them hunt made me start thinking, what if, what are the other women, why were they attracted to do this? What is it that, it, that they like about it? And so I interviewed a total of five about hunting pythons and how different it is from what the public perception is. You know, the public thinks of python hunting. They think of these kind of these wild, crazy guys with long beards running mm-hmm. around barefoot because they've seen that on TV and know these Women are all very well outfitted with, you know, boots and snake guards and knives and so forth. But they, some of them said, well, you know, basically I do this because, A, I know it's good for the environment, but, B, it's a chance for me to get out in the Everglades and, and wander around and grabbing a snake and trying to hold on to it for 30 minutes. Kind of a rush. So I have... They were interesting people. <laughs> I have always wanted to do that. I have always thought about, you know, who do I ask? I mean, do, is this like tours, like an airboat ride? You can like <laughs> call somebody and make a ride like to go out tomorrow night and hunt python. I, I, this story has fascinated me for a decade. I've always wanted to do it and live that experience you write about at FlamingoMag.com. So let's talk to Donna more about it. Donna, tell me about your background and how you got into hunting pythons. Yeah, well, I've been catching snakes all my life. I enjoyed catching snakes when I was a little kid and uh, pretending like I was out there catching anacondas in the <laughs> Amazon. <laughs> and uh, now I find myself, you know, 50 years later, I'm catching giant pythons in the Everglades. So, you hey, know, you, you sold, much you sold real estate in the 80s, right? You sold... I did, yeah. I, yeah. I got my license in the 80s and uh, basically sold real estate and bought and sold later on after I raised the kids. And, you know, I was a stay-at-home mom for a long time also and uh, mm-hmm. did a lot of volunteering for the PTA in elementary, middle, and high school <laughs> the, as the president of the PTAs. And, you know, basically I, I consider myself a helicopter mom that kind of landed hmm. and took over like a SWAT team, you know. <laughs> now I'm, you know, I'm landed in the Everglades and uh, taking out as many pythons as I can as quickly as I can. How did you hear about the job of hunting pythons? Uh, the first time I heard about pythons uh, being a problem in the glades was uh, on the front page of the Miami Herald back in 2005. I think it was they they had a picture of uh, I think it was a 13 foot python that had eaten uh, an alligator that was a little too big and uh, couldn't digest it, and it basically exploded out of its stomach and. There's a really gross picture right on the front of the uh, Herald, and it's like, oh, my God, if they're eating alligators, this is horrible. we got to get out there and do something. And, of course, you know, I'm a naturalist. I I've grew up down here. I love all the animals. And uh, when I saw that they were taking out alligators, it's like, no, that, that's a problem. We need to do something. And, hey, it's going to be an adventure to grab something that big. And I, I still remember it's like, yeah, I want to get an 18-footer and I sure hope it has like a deer in its stomach so that it slows it down, you know, because how am I going to handle an 18-foot python? Greg's (laughs) Greg's story in the Flamingo magazine talks not only about the pythons eating alligators, but really more damagingly all of the small mammals in the Everglades ecosystem. 99% loss of raccoons, 100% loss of foxes. You go on to squirrels and bobcats and everything else that should be there that isn't there now because of the python. Have you yourself been able to tell a difference from when you were young and visiting the park about the lack of biodiversity there now because of the python? Absolutely, absolutely. Those numbers that you just quoted are are from Everglades National Park study that was done. We used to go down there and see the bunnies and and all over the place. I mean, you know, along the road and, and raccoons and opossums at night. And I go down there on a regular basis now and I see nothing, nothing at all. It's amazing. Not, not one. 
I mean, think and, of it, uh, 99% it, loss of those animals. Yeah. It's, it's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, and it's not just in the parks anymore. That's like I said. That's where the study was done. But it, it, they're spreading. You know, I, I can hunt in properties all the way from Loxahatchee all the way down to the Keys. And gosh, if I've seen a dozen rabbits in the South End here over the last three years, you know, that'd be a lot. And I literally wow. kind of jump up and down for joy when I see a rabbit out there because it's just you know unheard of to see them anymore. But then if you go further north, and, and that's kind of how I gauge whether or not I'm going to find a python is if you do see the raccoons and the rabbits. Um, and, and possums, if you see a lot of uh, small animals, you know that the pythons haven't made it up there yet. It's important to get them from those areas uh, up north. It's just not as rewarding, to, you know, you're driving around and, and not finding pythons. But I'll tell you what, it's rewarding to see that there are still some animals further up north. And I, I, it's very important to get the pythons that are moving into that area. Hopefully we can get them before they move in and start eating everything up. That's what we're employed to do. We're, we're never going to get them all out. We're never going to catch them all. But if we can just slow their numbers down and keep them from from moving forward north, then hopefully we're, we're successful. What's your technique? Would it ha- when you go out, you're, you're driving around, you see a python within the glare of the lights from the t- from on top of your truck. What do you do? Mm-hmm. Well, basically, you know, put it in parks. Got to remember to yeah. do that. <laughs> There's been a couple of times where uh, you know that, that causes causes a problem. But you know, you get very excited. You're out there five six hours a sure. night. And all of a sudden, you see one down there, and that five seconds of, oh, my God, it's a python. you got to keep yourself in control. Um, You get out of the car and go down there as slowly as possible. My method is slow and easy. As long as that snake's not moving, they they hunt at a kind of a slow speed. And we're, we're basically hunting the hunters. We're looking for them out and about. We They're coming out or they're traveling somewhere. So two speeds, basically. Hunting, which is very slow, and crossing the crossing the road, going to somewhere else, which is also pretty slow. Maybe a little bit faster, but I'm talking, you know, very slow. <laughs> like a snail's pace almost, mm-hmm. right? They're, they're moving pretty... So anyway, you get down there and uh, I go as close as I can, uh, and I'm talking literally a couple of inches away. And as soon as the python knows I'm there and turns and looks at me and sticks its tongue out, I know that that's when I have to grab it. As soon as it looks at me, I grab it uh, right right behind the head, and that way it can't turn and, and get you. And, by get you, you know, by, it, will, it will bite I mean, it's a constrictor, so it's not poisonous. Yeah. yeah, but I no. can't imagine that feels good just to be bitten. No, no, and I generally use gloves because, <laughs> I mean, I don't mind getting bit. Uh, I've been bit many a time by pythons of all sizes, but I don't want to have the teeth stuck in me. I just uh, I just met, met another gentleman uh, out there the other night that he said he got two teeth stuck in him, and he had to have surgery on his on his uh, finger because the, the teeth don't come out, you know, and they will get infected in there and they cause problems. And so it's better to have gloves on and long sleeve shirts and try not to get bit by the mosquitoes also, you know, and uh, <laughs> if they bite, they'll bite right through the gloves. Uh, it's really? not for protection. Oh, yeah. It's not for protection from, from that. It's just that if they bite and the tooth comes out, it's going to come out in the glove as opposed to your hand. How are you licensed for this, or what is that process like? Because, you know, people can't just go out there and with their 22 and start shooting snakes. How does that process of becoming official, so to speak, work? So I wouldn't recommend anybody going out there with a 22 to shoot them. They, really, all the contractors, uh, I, I don't know of any contractor that goes out there specifically with a gun to shoot them. We always catch them first and euthanize them afterwards. It's much safer. You're not going to miss, you're, they're not going to get damaged or hurt. They're basically mm-hmm. kind of a weird thing, but you're going to kill it. You're not going to hurt it. Okay. It's it's one shot, one kill. Quickly, yeah, it's, it's humane. Over. You're doing um, it in a humane way. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, I've actually found a python with a 22 in it. Someone had shot it in the side, oh my. and there was a pellet. Was the the, the I'm sorry, the um, the bullet was still inside um, the the python. It healed over perfectly fine. I mean, if you don't shoot it right in the brain, it's not going to die. And you can shoot it even in the head. And if you don't get that little less than a dime size brain in there, you're it's uh-huh. going to take off and it's actually going to heal. There's yeah. Their, um, yeah, they're they're pretty amazing, actually very amazing features. Uh, but actually, you asked me, <laughs> um, how do you become a contractor? Mm. Like I said, I've been catching snakes and anything that moved down here for the past, uh, I guess, 50 years now. And um, I signed up um, for the Python Challenge, both 2013 and 2016. And I tried searching for them then. I actually didn't catch any in either one. And then found out that they have a uh, program for the parks, uh, a volunteer program. So I signed up for, for, for that, for Everglades National Park and Big Cypress. And I uh, caught uh, some some pythons with them, and also outside of the park. And there's a thing called Ed Maps, and that's kind of how I did a lot of my research as to where these pythons were being found. Basically, shows you actually all uh, invasive species in uh, in Florida, and specifically the one I was looking for was the Burmese python, and shows you on Ed Maps, you know, like Google Earth, as to where they find them. Hmm. And so I did a lot of research as to uh, how to find the darn things is literally I had hunt, hunted for Python specifically from 2005 to 2015 when I finally crossed paths with one. So it took me 10 years really? of, of, yeah, of learning the hard way and the wrong way. <laughs> you know, you don't go walking through the woods looking for them, you know, taking hikes out in the glades and stuff. It's highly, highly unlikely that you're going to come across one. Why is that? Um, if there's so just, many, why are they so hard to find? Yeah, they're just so cryptic. Um, you can literally walk past one and I'm trained, you know, uh-huh. I've, I've trained my eyes, uh, to, to be able to spot them in pretty much any circumstance, water, trees, ground, everywhere, um, and any type of surface. And I can still walk past one without even knowing it. They're just so cryptic that uh, they're champions that hide and seek. They absolutely are. Uh, you know, and, and again, like a 13 foot Python really only needs about four or five inches of grass to hide in. Wow. So it can go undetected, and they do. You know, there's unfortunately uh, they're showing up in in the cities now on the east side. I've been called several times to go look for pythons that are uh, that are in people's yards in Coconut Grove and, and Coral Gables and Gables by the Sea and whatnot. And there's just no way. I mean, I'm hoping that the uh, dogs that they're training will will help out in that respect because uh, trying to find them on foot is extremely difficult unless somebody's like, oh, I saw the python go over there underneath that mm-hmm. rock. And then you go over and you look, it's like, okay, it's in that area. You can trim it down. But if you're going into a backyard that's quarter acre and it's lushly landscaped, <laughs> there ain't no way. <laughs> you're, just, <laughs> you're just not going to find it. It's too difficult. And they, they will find uh, underground areas uh, to, to hide in. When you first started out, were you having trouble learning how to do it just because it was kind of a click that you were joining and that nobody wanted to show you the ropes? Yeah, look, I, yes. <laughs> it, with uh, with it's called herping. You know, you're you're looking mm-hmm. for uh, reptiles and and amphibians and all that sort of thing. And and nobody wants to give up their spot. I don't yeah. blame them. I mean, now now that we have a hundred hunters, you know, I used to be pretty free as to, hey, let's go. We I just spotted this python down here. It's like, well, I found out the hard way that when you do that, <laughs> you've got a hundred people on your doorstep <laughs> the next day looking for the same snake. You know, 
So uh, it was great when we had 25, you know, and, and we were all kind of, yeah, well, actually, I take it take it back. There were some that were very well qualified and, you know, they didn't they didn't give up their information. But I was a newbie and, uh, you know, I was I was happy to share the information that I was learning along the way, you know, because, look, it's not it's there's a difference. It, it's not a corn snake or a, you know, a native snake that you, you don't want to give up your spot because you, there's a whole bunch of people that are going to be there looking at your, your snakes and getting in your way. This is, these are pythons. We want to get rid of them. My, my thought is everybody that I can get to sign up to help me find these things or get them themselves is a positive. You know, mm-hmm. like I said, there's lands from the Keys up to Loxahatchee over to Naples to, to Miami, that whole area. I can't be every place in one spot, yeah, you know, which is one, essentially at, the, at the same time. The southern third of the state we're talking about. I mean, that's much. a massive, yeah. massive area. Absolutely, absolutely, and the the I don't want to say the more the merrier. Um, as long as people should be trained, people shouldn't be watching a TV show and saying, "Oh, I gotta go out there and run through the woods and look for python." <laughs> Good lord! Like, yeah, you know, but they there are. Well, and you and, yeah, uh, you can see how that would sort of attract a cowboy mentality. Yeah, and and I I hope that uh, more guys will show the proper way of doing it because guys looking at women doing it uh as i'm going to say the proper way mm. <laughs> like grabbing them by the head if you can uh, granted there's sometimes you can't grab them by the head and you have to grab whatever you can i've had to grab a few mid body or, or tail but that's not the way to, to catch a python the, the the way to catch a python is to grab it behind the head once you grab it behind the head it's secured then you have to try to make sure that that tail stays off of you so if it's small enough, you grab it by the tail, too, and you hold it out, and you make sure it doesn't wrap around you. You know, you definitely don't want it to do that because it is a constrictor, and it can kill you. You know, I, I think I told Craig the, the story about the seven-and-a-half-footer that wrapped around my neck, and, you know, that was a mistake that I made. Unfortunately, there was people there to uh, <laughs> help uh, me break loose from yeah, it. Yeah, a know? fascinating story he recalls, and, and you recall to him in Flamingo Magazine. You're a, a small woman. What did it feel like when that snake was fighting for its life and trying to constrict you to death before you constricted it to death? <laughs> well, you know, I thought I had everything under control. That's why I let my guard down, because it was a small snake. I was used to catching 10 to 12 footers, and uh, seven and a half foot is, is small. So, you know, I grabbed it. I was in the water and took a phone call from my from my daughter, <laughs> which was a mistake. And, uh, you know, as... As I'm holding the phone in one hand and the snake in the other, the snake literally took its tail and, and kind of crawled up backwards, tail first, and got around my neck. And it feels that your uh, your jugulars, you know, it, it, or the um, your uh, mm-hmm. carotid, carotid artery. artery yeah. It, yeah, it feels it, it can feel the the uh, the carotid wow. artery, and it didn't wrap all the way around my neck. It wrapped side to side and just pushed pressure on those arteries. And so I'm a diver. I, I, I free dive and, you know, I can hold my breath for almost two minutes. So I'm like, oh, that's cool. I've got plenty of time. I'll put my phone in my pocket and get the snake off of me. But you forget that it's not just the oxygen to the, to the brain. It's actually the pressure that can knock you out. And he started putting pressure on me and I started getting numb and lightheaded. Within really? 10, yeah, within 10 seconds, I started oh getting gosh. numb and lightheaded. And it's like, this isn't good, <laughs> you know? So uh, <laughs> so that's when I realized, okay, I need to, I need to get some, some assistance here. Fortunately, I was out with, with uh, two people that knew what, the, what to do. And, you know, basically it's very simple. I mean, if you grab the tail and you pull it out from around mm-hmm. you and it, it's, again, a seven and a half footer, had I not had my phone in my hand, 
or in, in the water. I could have dropped my phone, but it would have been in the water. So <laughs> I couldn't do that. So, yeah. you know, you could literally pull it off of you. But the my circumstance in that situation was... Uh, a little odd, <laughs> to say the least. So, so that so they they hunt by feeling for the uh, essentially pulse of their victims, and then that's where they latch onto or, or apply their their greatest pressure to you, or essentially a prey animal at at, at yeah. this point. Unbelievable! Yeah, look, it wasn't it right, wasn't, wasn't going to bite me. Yeah. It wasn't going to eat me. It was just <laughs> trying to get away. And, right. and most likely, had I passed out uh, and my grip would have loosened, it would have just taken off, and mm-hmm. I probably would have come too. Unless I landed face first in the water, then that might have been a problem. Yeah, um, no but you do have to be careful. I kind of nonchalant because I've caught over 300 pythons now, but you have to be careful all the time. You know, you really do. I could tell you another story about the uh, 15-footer that that I caught with a, another hunter, uh, Kevin Pavlidis. We caught that, and he had grabbed the head, and I grabbed the rest of the body to keep it off because the, basically what they do is they, they'll try to pull your hands off of their head and break loose, so they'll mm-hmm. wrap around your arms. And so what you want to do is you want to try to keep that off. And I basically laid on the snake, and I'm holding it back because I couldn't hold the tail back. It was just too strong. I couldn't hold it, so I laid on it, and it wrapped around my leg, um, the top part of my leg. And uh, this had happened many a times with 12-footers and less, and that's fine. I, I usually don't mind that because I actually help, it helps me get them up off the levee, mm-hmm. walking uphill, you know, with them wrapped around you instead of trying to manage a whole big 10 to 12 foot snake. So that's fine. But the 15 footer, and my daughter was with me at the time actually. Um, and so she's like, mom, you want me to take this off? It's like, no, that's okay. We're going to, we're, it's fine there. And then it, it like vice, it, it ripped me and it viced on me. And the first time it's like, yeah, it's okay. The second time it's like, oh, that's not good. It's really strong. The third time it's like, yeah, go ahead and get this thing off my leg. How, would, how, would, you bones, com- you how would you compare that grip to like the, the grip strength of your average man who, you know, would be trying to grab your leg? Not even close. I mean, you know, unless they, the guy's seven foot with hands like Michael Jordan or, some, or mm-hmm. <laughs> big basketball player grabbing my whole leg. I think it had three wraps around my leg, and uh, it basically took over my whole leg. So it's not like two hands around your your leg. It's it's like a dozen hands around your leg and and just basically compressing it in a grip. I mean, in a vice grip. It's like like a vice grip. And it continued. I mean, it actually got five vices down. You know, it would like Mm -hmm. constrict in, in pulses. It, it got five pulses before. Actually, I think the fourth one, because my daughter couldn't pull it off of me either. Wow. Uh, the fourth the fourth vice, I said, Kevin, let me grab the head. And I took the head from him, and I said, get this thing off of me. And mm-hmm. he, you know, I'm now I'm holding the head and the top part of him. And he and Deanna both grabbed it and pulled it off of me. And that time I learned not to allow any snake bigger than 12 feet <laughs> to wrap around you. We, we like to do a, a Florida survival tip in, in the Welcome to Florida podcast. So I, I think there may be two from this one. One is, if you're hunting pythons, don't answer the phone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and the other one is, don't go out there alone. <laughs> yeah. have a backup. <laughs> it is. It's definitely, definitely good to have a, a backup. Speaking of your daughter, tell us about you you cook the pythons. You're the only python hunter I found who sometimes cooks them, and she made she made cookies, didn't she? Yeah, yeah. Actually, there's a couple of uh, I've, I've posted a few little Facebook uh, videos of a couple of things that I've cooked, and so a couple of people are trying it. 
we went to a Mensu convention out in Arizona last year, and my oh, daughter. What kind of convention? Uh, Mensa. Oh, Mensa. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Um, and uh, he and I so are members. Was, we're we're not smart enough. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not a member either. I, my my husband and both kids are okay, but uh, I missed it by that much. But, <laughs> but uh, I, I love going. Actually, they're they're great conventions, and uh, I was asked to speak at, at at this one last year about python hunting, of course. So we brought cookies, python python cookies uh, made with python eggs, and I came out and thought nobody would you wouldn't know you would not know that they were made with mm-hmm. python eggs. It was just kind of a novel. Thing, you know, you have to tell people why you have to can't necessarily cook every python. So a study it's was done, uh, yeah, yeah, several years ago. I think 2016 was the the last study that was done. I'd love to have another study done, a little more uh, diverse. But they did have a study and and showed that a couple of the pythons came up really, really hot with mercury. And I think it was only a study of maybe six or seven pythons, and 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 some came up really hot, and others came up with nothing. And so I figured, you know, I, I'm sure it's something about them staying in the environment for a long time. That is, uh-huh. you know, what mercury is. It's accumulative. So I basically, um, I, I got a mercury testing kit. Actually, my daughter sent away for it. Uh, I'll check my the, the pythons. And I hadn't had any come up positive. I, had, I did over a dozen and all like seven, eight feet, nothing larger mm-hmm. than eight feet. So really only like a two-year-old. It's seven or eight feet, they're only literally either two to three years old. That's it. Um, and I figure that's that's not enough time to, to get mercury. And so, uh, you know, I, I, with all these snakes, I was correct. And I decided, you know, I'm a little worried about this test. Is it actually working? <laughs> so I so I, I checked uh, I checked the 15 footer um, that that I that mm-hmm. I caught. Sure enough, it came up positive. There's something that you want to tell your listeners. You know, if you're going to try a python, make sure that it's not more than three years old, you know, I wouldn't yeah. go anything bigger than 10 feet, you know. <laughs> What's some stuff you've cooked? You made, you made like a liver and onions dish. That, that's oh, yeah. That, actually, I, you know, that was the one, I think that was the last thing I made, and, and actually I was very happy with it. I liked liver and onions anyway, so mm-hmm. um, if you like liver and onions, you'd never know the difference between a python liver or a cow's liver or whatnot. So, so you just fil- yeah. do you fillet it or do you cut it up as chops or steaks? I mean, how do you prepare snake to eat? And and then of course, what does it taste like? So yeah, liver is liver. You're mm. not going to know the difference. It's basically, garlic and onions, uh, uh, and you're good to go. Python meat is extremely white, but it is very chewy because uh, there's a lot of sinew. Again, it's a constrictor, so you have to think about how, yeah, how powerful yeah. it's going to be. Yeah, You know, I, I basically, I've made pasta, chili, sweet and sour, stir-fry, several other dishes as well. And and basically what I do um, is I pressure cook it first for about 10, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, depending on, on, you know, the size, and then put it in any recipe, chicken or pork recipe. It's perfectly fine. Yesterday, I guess it was, I, I just filleted up, Another one. I haven't decided what I'm going to do with that yet, but it, it, filleting it is is another way of doing it. Put it in. That's what I was going to do with this. I was going to put it with like a pork uh, ground pork mm-hmm. and grind this up. And and they make really good burgers when you when you mix them. You know, I'll mix them half and half. The first time that I made burgers was uh, venison that a friend of mine gave me, and so we we mixed that up, and it came out really really good too. Yeah, don't right? you make python jerky too? Yeah, I make uh, python jerky. 
Oh, thanks for reminding me of that. I think that's what I'm going to do with it instead of the burgers. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just love that you you're, you you take the python jerky with you when you're hunting. So you're eating the python while you're out hunting the python. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I'm just about out. I, I'm glad you reminded me. Uh, I'm just about out. Yeah, you don't really need much. I mean, it, it is like chewing gum, you know, because I don't pressure cook that when it's not cooked. It's, it's dry. You know, mm-hmm. I put the dry rub, thick, thick dry rub on it, and, uh, and then I... Um, basically dried out making jerky out of it and uh, chop it up into very small pieces because it is very chewy and it's, like you said, uh, protein bubble gum. <laughs> you chew it up for a while and then you can finally swallow it after a little while. We touched but, on this uh, briefly earlier, but why do, you, why do you hunt them at night? Basically, you have to do what the snakes do. If you want to get a catch a python, you gotta, you've got to learn about a python. You know, what is a python doing and when? Actually, that is one of the reasons why it took me 10 years to, uh, to finally catch one. I was... I was going out in the in the day and, and searching the woods, and that's they're hiding underground. Then and now uh, I know that they hunt in uh, the warmer warmer months at night, mm-hmm. and in the in the day uh, they come out and sun themselves in the morning to get warm. They're they're cold blooded. They have to. I kind of call them solar panels. You know, they they will run out of energy at night, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> and and they have to get their energy back with the sun. Basically, in the winter months, we do hunt uh, in the day, and in the summer months, it's it's all at night because that's what they're doing. They're out there hunting. You talked about having killed 300, which sounds like a big number until you consider we're talking about the lower third of the state, essentially, and there's been enough of them to largely wipe out all of the small mammals that used to live there. How many individuals ballpark are we talking about? How many Burmese python are there in southern Florida? Actually, my numbers my my numbers up to three seventy nine now. Uh, my friend and I just caught mm-hmm. and my daughter just caught forty seven in the last two days. Oh wow! Wow! Yeah, good for yeah, you. That's, that's yeah, that's the most that anybody's ever caught uh, under the programs. And they're hatchlings. They're not giant snakes. Oh, they're they're still, all hatchlings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, we're we're very fortunate to have come close to finding a nest. We never did find the nest itself with the with the mama on top of it. But we did find all of the hatchlings leaving the nest. It took us, well, I guess, about nearly 10 hours to get them over the course of two nights. To get back to your question about how many do you think are out there, look, if you think about both programs that are contracted right now in over the past three years, one of the last ones that I caught was the number 3,077. That's with South Florida Water Management. FWC has more than 1,000 I think we're coming close to about 5,000 together. If you look at EdMaps, there's more than 5,000 caught over a period of, I, I don't know when EdMaps started, but, you know, it's going back more than three years, obviously. And they have more than 5,000 pythons caught. And then you factor in how many people don't contact EdMaps and just catch them and don't mm-hmm. keep them alive, but, you know, they, they, they catch them just for the sport of it or kill them because they're in their property or whatnot. I would guess that there may be 10,000 pythons that have been caught. So then you start thinking, if there's 10,000 that have been caught, what percentage is that that we can actually get to and catch? And then you multiply that percentage by how many were caught, and you come up with a guesstimate at best. My guesstimate would be over 100,000, basically is saying that we caught 10% of them. Judging by the amount of people that are trying to catch them out there and the amount of space that's out there, and the amount of food that's out there, 
There can be over 100. Yeah, there can be well over 100,000. It depends on if I'm on a positive or negative day. <laughs> if I'm being optimistic, <laughs> I'll say that hopefully there's a, around 100,000. On a pessimistic day, I could say there could be, you know, 300,000. Wow. You know, because I think that there's more pythons around the levees and around the roads that we can get to because there's a lot of the Everglades that they can't reproduce in. They need dry land. And a lot of the Everglades is very, very wet in certain times of the years when when they're on their nest. That is fortunate for us. I also don't think that the fires, that hopefully they haven't learned to uh, adapt to the fires. So maybe a large percentage of the, of the Everglades might not be overrun with them like they are on the levees that we have. The man-made structures of the levees are, are perfect for them to lay their nests in the you know, in the holes or whatnot on the on the sides of the levee and, and the trees and whatnot that grow near them. Who's winning, the the pythons or the, the python hunters? Well, I can tell you, I like to hunt everywhere. I'll, I'll go and, and check out all the different properties, so I'm going to check out everything. I can tell you, some of the places that, that uh, I've hunted for the past three years have actually lowered the, the amount of pythons that are caught there now. So I do believe that we're making a difference. I did see four rabbits in one location uh, on one night, and I mean, it's like, man, we are, we're making a difference. They actually were able to breed and, and you know, some, some little baby wow. rabbits around. Mm-hmm. So that was awesome. And then there's other nights where I become very pessimistic when I hear 20 pythons are taken off of one levee, and that was just one night, and, you know, it happens every night. Are we making a difference in, in that location? Why are there so many in some locations, and we can actually get rid of them in some places and not in others? I think that, at best, we're we're keeping them at bay in certain areas. In others, I think I have job security. <laughs> yeah. you know. I wanted to mention a phrase that is sure to strike fear into the hearts of anybody who, who is afraid of snakes, and that, that phrase is mating ball. Tell us about <laughs> <Yeah>. mating ball. <laughs> well, to a hunter, it's awesome. You know, it, it, it's being able to catch uh, three pythons at once, and, and that, that was the best that I've done. Funny story, the first First breeding ball that I came came across, there was one male that was leaving the scene, <laughs> and that's how I spotted. You know, I spotted the one, and I caught it. It's like woohoo! I got one. I was with two of my friends, had one of my friends videotaping, and you know, so I'm showing up the python. I got it. It's a good size, probably about uh, eight and a half feet, I think it was. And my friend Mark was, you know, came down with me to see, you know, if if, he, if I needed help and. I didn't. So he's looking around. He's like, God, there's one behind you. It's like, wait, what? And I turn around. It's like, sure enough, there's another one right there. And so I handed him the, the, the one python. He ran it up to Grenade and, and they bagged it. And uh, I'm keeping my eye on, on this other one. Thought it was only one. Thought it was a big one. And I was like, Mark, come down. I'm going to need your help. It's a big one. And then I, as I approach it, the other male comes at me to protect the female that he was with. And wow. so I basically... <laughs> grabbed it by the head, and as soon as I grabbed it, the female took off, and I lunged, and I grabbed her by the head, and I come up with two pythons, one in each hand. It's like, oh, holy cow. You know, that was that was awesome. <laughs> I mean, I, I hadn't, it's funny, I, I hadn't ever heard anybody ever catching, you know, two pythons at once, and I was pretty thrilled, you mm-hmm. know. And the very next week, I'm hunting with uh, my friend Kevin Pavlidis, who's also, like, I, I hired on for FWC. I'm hunting with him and Chris Gillette, and Chris spots one, and he jumps off the tower of my, my truck and, and grabs it. I put the car in park, and I get out. I'm getting out of the car. Kevin already jumped down, and he grabs three 
from the breeding ball and brings three up. And it's like, Kevin, did you really have to show me up like that? I just caught two and you had to, you know, show me up with three. Really? So we actually caught six. Yeah, six that day. And, wow. You know, a breeding ball of, of four and then mm-hmm. two more that were, I think, getting ready to, to get into a voyeurs. breeding ball. So. Yeah. Uh, yeah, voyeurs. <laughs> um, for... Well, we start we started off talking about mosquito sex yeah. before we called you, so now we're talking very, about uh, snake sex. Very risque so. podcast. Yeah, this will, I'll have to check the uh, Not For uh, Young Audiences box when we uh, upload this one. Yeah, it'll be, it'll be rated in C-17. <laughs> uh, just uh, for folks who may not know, FWC, when Donna mentions that, that's the uh, Florida Fish and Wildlife Commission. You talked about job security. How are you paid mm-hmm. for this? So we're paid minimum wage for driving around looking for stuff, but we also get paid uh, per snake. We get $50 for the first four feet and uh, $25 after, uh, every foot after that. I kind of wish that it was it would go back up to $50 after 13 feet because you're, you're not talking about a snake anymore. You're talking about a monster. You know, hmm. I've got yeah. uh, <laughs> over a dozen uh, 13 plus. And yeah, they're just they're just a whole nother animal. But yeah, that's how we get compensated. You know, we get uh, minimum wage, and there's many a nights that we go out there, especially January, February, March. Many a nights that we're not catching anything. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, you you got the wear and tear on your truck. You know, the the tires. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. yeah they the yeah the wear and tear on the truck is is tough. I drive around in a 1998 Ford Expedition. Had it since uh, since Christmas of '98. Uh, yeah, so 98 had a Christmas of 97, so it's, um, what, 22 years old. I've mm-hmm. had it for 22 years. And I'm rebuilding that thing from the from the ground up, and actually I've had to rebuild a few things on that a couple times because <laughs> it's all the uh, jostling. We're not talking about easy roads here. We're talking about, you know, potholes-filled uh, mm-hmm. levees. But, yeah, I've, I've, I've tricked it out. You know, I've, I've uh, made it my python mobile and my pet <laughs> my python elimination transportation is what i call it <laughs> i put a, a python perch up on top of it and uh that that helps me basically i i like bringing out people um there's a lot of people that uh, that i meet on facebook that want to go out there and help over the past three years i've had nearly 300 volunteers come out with me to help me spot and bag them and and when given a chance I'll, I'll let them catch them if I can you know back it up make sure that it's not going to get away so you know they get the experience and, and it's a win-win situation you know this is something where people they can't get out there they're not allowed out there uh, except with a contractor and I need eyes out there you know and it's very helpful and 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 it's much safer to have someone out there with you I am so, absolutely going to take you up. I don't know if that's an offer, but I am yeah, I am volunteering. <laughs> I live well, up on well, Amelia Island, so I'm I'm far away. But my mom and I, for the longest time, have talked about wanting to do one of these ride-alongs, essentially. Mm-hmm. So I will absolutely take you up on that. I think it's a, a fascinating program, and uh, it would be you know one of those memory to last a lifetime. Obviously, spending a night uh, with you looking for pythons. But before you before you jump in. Donna, you may want to warn him about the sweet smell of success. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully, yeah, hopefully, we'll we'll have that that night when you come out with me because uh, you know the sweet smell of success is uh, is basically getting musked by a python. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's, it's, what does yeah, that smell like? Uh, not so good. I mean, you know, <laughs> you get used to it, I guess. Yeah. Uh, Basically, the snake is pooping and peeing on you at the mm-hmm. same time, you know, and, and, and letting out a few other things, yeah. that, uh, the pheromones and whatnot, the smells of, uh, of a python, basically, and you get that on you, and 
really kind of interesting how quickly you get used to that smell, though. <laughs> so don't worry about that. It's, it's the mosquitoes that'll carry you away that you got to worry about. <laughs> how can folks identify a, a Burmese python for our listeners who are not naturalists and don't see them every day, and maybe they live in one of these places you've talked about or near that? Like, is that a python or is that a this? How do they identify a python? I'm figuring the 15-footers they'll be able to ID, but if it's a you know four, five, six-foot snake, how do they identify them, and then what do they do if they see one? For someone who doesn't know snakes, you've got to be real careful because there are venomous snakes out there that look kind of similar. They, they all have patterns, and for me to describe a pattern to you from a moccasin to a python to a brown water snake, they're all patterns, and some people are better at picking out patterns than others. So you really have to look at a lot of pictures in books and, and, you know, make sure you know your snakes before you go and pick one up because otherwise you'll find yourself in a hospital because you got bit by a venomous snake. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't recommend people getting out there and, and, and going out there if you don't know your, your native snakes. The easy rule is if it's bigger than you, it's not a native. <laughs> if it's bigger than you, it's a python, okay? And you might as that well go sense. ahead and... Uh, yeah. Wait, let me lie yeah. down next to it and check. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there you go. <laughs> and then what do you call the 911, the police, the Fish and Wildlife Commission? What? Who are you supposed to get in touch with if you see one of these? They do have uh, the 188, I've got one number, which ah. I highly recommend, yeah, that you that you give a call to, and that's FWC. And uh, if you can take a picture, that's the best thing. Call the number and say exactly where you saw it and when, and they can actually send somebody out there to uh, to, to go and get it, hopefully. 888, uh, I've got one. Yep. Okay. Yep. Yeah, especially if it's in your yard or something, you know, if you, you know, they're, they're showing up even on people's boats, for goodness sakes, the other day, there was one showed up on someone's boat in uh, Gables by the Sea. There's this, if you look at Google Maps, you'll see that there's this wild area coming from the Keys all the way up to mm -hmm. Coconut Grove on the east side. I don't know where your listeners are from. I'm probably from all over the, the world. I'm sorry. I, I, I mm -hmm. may, I'm making I it local, so. <laughs> like this is a local thing. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm kind of describing it as a local thing. But if you look at the state of Florida, <laughs> and the southern part in particular, you look at the Keys and you go north from, uh, from the Keys on the east side, it goes almost up to Miami there's wild areas. And then on the west side, you have the Everglades in the middle, and it goes over to Naples. And there's paths that these snakes can take all the way along the southern tip of Florida. And uh, they are being found in the bay and along the coasts, uh, along both coasts, not to mention, obviously, the Everglades and, and throughout. You know, they are expanding their range. As they, as they eat off all of the native animals in one area, they do expand further. And, you know, they can have up to 100 babies each year. Wow. Yeah. So, and no real natural predators, obviously, which is why they're able to, their numbers can run away so fast. Yeah, there are natural pre predators their first year. After their first year, they're about uh, anywhere from four to seven feet wow. long, depending on the food that they, they're, they're able to uh, get their mouths around. And so a seven-foot snake, there's not much other than alligators. Anything three, four feet, large birds, maybe uh Green or blue herons or, or white, great white herons, mm -hmm. um, you know, wood storks. Uh, some birds will be able to eat uh, something that's almost a year old, but past the year, there's really not all that much that's going to going to eat them. So yeah, yeah. A, a natural predator in their full size, no, no, no. 
unfortunately not. It's it's, it's just you. It's You're us the and some large. Yeah, mm. yeah. Basically, it's mm. it's us and some large gators. That's it. Yeah. You can read yeah. more about Donna and the female python hunters in Flamingo Magazine, flamingomag.com. Craig's article is in the most recent edition. This has been a fascinating conversation, Donna. I can't thank you enough and wish you and uh, your colleagues all the best of luck trying to neutralize these snakes that are eating uh, eating up our state. No, thank you for having me on your show. I really enjoyed it. I love spreading the word and don't let your pets go. And Donna, think about writing a cookbook. there you go pictures and everything right (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) there you go thanks again have a good day Donna mentioned there, Craig, at the very end, don't let your pets go. And this is something yeah. we talked about with JR in our very first episode. These amnesty days for people who have exotic pets. Is the prevailing theory still that this population started with some irresponsible pet owners yeah. letting individuals yeah. go and one thing led to another? The first ones they found in the Everglades National Park were back in the 70s. There's That a, far there's ago, a, really? Yeah. And wow. I mean, there's a there's a story that has floated around for years that Hurricane Andrew came through in 1992. That's the story Destroyed I heard it. and believed in, yeah. that it was an, yeah. you know, everything got loose after after Andrew came through, but that's that, not accurate, huh? Well, that's not where it started, let's okay. put it that way. Uh, I, have, I have invested some time in trying to find that breeding facility and find who owned it and have run into numerous dead ends. So I'm, hmm. I don't know if it happened. I have not been able to find proof that it happened. But if it did, that's not the original source for the pythons. Wow, I didn't. I and that's the purpose of this podcast. Hopefully, is to educate people things like that because I had no idea this went back that far. The night you went out, the nights you went out. What were your big takeaways? The big thing that struck me was how much time and energy they have to invest just to find maybe one snake. The two women I went out with, uh, Beth Kohler and, and Peggy Van Gorder, they spent six hours driving up and down on a levee road, and we actually passed another python hunter, the guy who actually has a TV show, Dusty Crumb, the wild man, Mm -hmm. who passed us going the other way, and nobody had caught anything in that time. And Dusty joked, you know, maybe we caught them all, but they knew that that (laughs) wasn't the case. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just, it's very time intensive. And so people, sometimes you hear politicians talk about, oh, we're going to double the number of hunters Mm -hmm. searching the Everglades for pythons, and that'll fix the problem. No. It's not, because it's just, no matter how you do it, it's a really slow and, and time-intensive process to try and look for these things. And there have been some talks about technological advances to find them, but mm-hmm. even if you find them, you still got to catch them. You still have to have humans go out there yeah. and drive around and catch them. Mm-hmm. So, so far, the big advantage the pythons have is they have a head start on us. Yeah. You know, here's a really like deep ecological question. You talk about the hunters going out on the levees and Mm -hmm. Donna mentioned that they need dry land to lay their eggs. To breed. Yeah. Yeah, If the Everglades and the southern Florida ecosystem were returned to a more natural state with water flows, would that decrease their numbers because essentially that sheet of water that flows out of Lake Okeechobee would be returned and everything wouldn't be dammed and diked and levied and there wouldn't be so much dry land for them to live on? Uh, no, because here's the thing is, yes, they need dry land for breeding, but they can swim. Mm-hmm. They swim quite well. That's how they wind up down in the Keys. 
yeah. is that they know how to swim. So they would still have to look for dry land for breeding, but the rest of the year they'd be fine swimming around as long as, long as they could find prey. And there are tree islands naturally in yeah. the glades yeah. where a lot of the wildlife ends up, and so they would probably, you know, that would become their buffet, <laughs> you know, for for dinner. They just swim up there and say, hmm, why don't we have up here? Oh, there's a white-tailed deer. I'll take that, you know, or something like that. It would be helpful, but it wouldn't be the solution, I guess is what I'm saying. Welcome to Florida. <laughs>